0: Good morning church good morning it's good to be in the house of God and and I want to welcome everyone this morning and as we prepare to hear the message I'm just going to pose a challenge to every one of you I'm struggling to come up with a title for the message today so I put a beautiful picture here so I just want to take a moment to look at the picture and see what title that we can give for this message I know I said deeds of the good shepherd I mean that's another title but something else, just take a moment to think about this while I adjust myself here so that I can stand on the platform and speak. I'm just trying to earn some time, that's all. Bear with me. Okay, good. Great. <laughs> well, we are on a journey through the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 10. And Jesus is still on the topic, on the identity of who he was. And Jesus, again, as you see today, he expands on this exclusivity a term that we don't like so in today's text Jesus does three things to his sheep he wants them he instructs them and he assures them he wants the sheep about false shepherds so that they will not follow he instructs the sheep about himself as the good shepherd and what he provides for the for his flock And thirdly, he assures the sheep of his sacrificial care for them and of the fact that he will accomplish his purpose with them. Church, I want you to pay close attention to the teaching today as we will be dipping into deep waters on some doctrinal issues. I've given you a a hint through the picture that you see on the screen, of course, and any wild guess. Alright, that's good. I'm sure you can come up with something. Just hold on to that. Park it in the corner of your mind. Let's read on. Verse number 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives life for the sheep. So what is Jesus saying here? He is telling to us and to the audience, I am the good shepherd. And as you go through the Gospel of John, this is the fourth I am Jesus is talking about, he said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep." we looked at it last time, and he's saying, I am the good shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis onwards, you can see that God referred to himself as the shepherd. So when David said, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, everybody can relate to that. Even the Pharisees who were standing there could relate to that David's beautiful psalm. Now Jesus is saying, hey, listen, that good shepherd that you heard about, is me. Wow. Powerful, isn't it? It's me. In the second part of this, Jesus qualifies what this good shepherd would do for the sheep. He said the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In the text that we have selected today, there are at least four times we see that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So what does that really mean when he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, or I give my life for the sheep? Church, there are three fundamental truths on this subject, giving his life for the sheep, that I want us to grasp today. Number one, the firstly, Jesus' death was selfless. Everybody say the word selfless. It was selfless. The scripture says the good shepherd gives his life. His giving was the greatest act of selfless love in the history of the world. Jesus died voluntarily without any expectation. He's not expecting anything from any one of us. He died for us while we were still messing up in our own lives. We see in the book of of Romans, the apostle Paul writes, but God demonstrates his love Toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have not repented. We have not come and asked for forgiveness. But he died for us. That is a selfless love. His deep, selfless care for us. There was nothing for him. It's all for us to gain. So that's the first thing that we are saying here. It's a selfless death. Secondly, Jesus' death was a sacrificial death. Church, as you read this verse again, the good shepherd gives his life for whom? For the sheep. For the sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. He died in the place of the sheep. He died in the place of you and me. We should have been on the cross. We should have faced God's righteous eternal judgment because of all our sins. But Jesus intervened with his own blood to pay the debt on our behalf. Jesus was the only one who was qualified to die for us. Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and this is what he says. For he made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin. For whom? For us. That we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. Church, as you read these texts, we had to pause and and, and see what gems that we have we can absorb. What does this really mean? God imputed our sins to Christ, and God imputed Christ's righteousness to us. So the death was a sacrificial death. It's not only a selfless and a sacrificial death. The third thing that we can talk about the death is that it was a specific death. Everybody says specific. He laid down his life for whom? For the sheep. Come with me please. That's what, I, that's what I showed you in the diagram earlier. He laid down his life for the sheep. Please you have to follow along. Otherwise you will, you will be lost. Paul expressed this in another term. When he wrote his epistle to the saints in Ephesus. He says, Christ loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her. Do you get it? Remember that? Christ loved who? The church, and, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her. So Paul says, come with me, you'll have, you can think logically, Paul says, Christ died for the church, And Jesus is saying here that I die for the sheep. So the church is the sheep he's talking about, isn't it? Church is the redeemed. That's the sheep he's talking about. So when you look at this passage, he died specifically for his sheep, not for anyone and everyone else. Not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. He died for the sheep. And you ask, why? Listen, church. So that all that God appointed, those whose names were written in the book of life, before the foundation of the world are redeemed. That is why he died. For that sheep. That is why in John 6, we looked at it in the past. Look at this verse. This is the will of him who sent me, who sent Jesus here. God, who sent me, that all of that who God gave has been given to him, I lose what? Nothing. Powerful voice. This is the will of him who sent me, that, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus died only for his own sheep. The theologians call this the elect. The sheep as the elect. That's another name for that. You may say, wait a minute, Pastor. If Jesus died for his own sheep to a selected group of people, what the theologians call the elect, why should we offer the gospel to all the people? A good question, isn't it? Then why do we evangelize even? It's a debatable question since the time of Christ. Church, let me start with this. We evangelize because our Creator commands us to evangelize. Simple as that. I want you to listen, Church, carefully. The Bible teaches both, pay attention please, God's sovereignty in electing sinners to salvation and our calling to evangelize and spread the gospel. We find both in the scriptures. God has commanded us to evangelize as this is his chosen means of advancing his kingdom on earth. So we have the privilege of being used by God to accomplish his will. Spurgeon puts it so beautifully, this one. Please look at this. Beloved, Cling to the great truth of electing love and divine sovereignty, but let not these bind you in fetters, meaning in chains, when in the power of the Holy Spirit you become fishers of men. Just because you understand this doctrine, or just because you hear about this doctrine, let this not stop you from evangelizing. Let me give an illustration here, please. When God answers the prayer for someone for food, how does he answer the prayer? He sent someone, isn't it, with food. He does not ordinarily drop food down in their laps from sky. He did that only one time. When? In the wilderness. They got the manna. Of course, Elijah was fed by the ravens. But I remember there was a prayer lady who was here in Mississauga. She has gone to be with the Lord. I used to go and pray with her. And every time I go, I have to eat food in her house. And, and when I went that day, she said, Son, you have to have lunch with me. And she, wants, she said, let us pray. I was running out of time. I was looking at the clock. I said, I have to go to work. So we're going to pray. I said, where's the food? She said, I'm looking for rice. I said, where's the rice bag? He said, God will provide. I was not very happy. And she started boiling the water. Every word I say is true. So I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm, I'm not focusing on the prayer. I'm looking at the water being boiled, getting boiled. And where is the rice? I'm getting late. Believe it or not. Fifteen minutes would have passed. There was a knock on the door. A, la- a lady who lived in the same apartment up there on, the, on a different floor came down and said, I'm going to to one of the south american countries i forgot which country it was she said i want to i want to give this bag so you can the bag of rice so you can use it for the ministry god uses people to achieve the to answer the prayers what a blessing it is church to be used to bless others with the bread of life with the word of god Another saying that we have from R.C. Sproul is this. He says, God not only forordains the end of salvation, for whom? For the elect. He also ordain the means to that end. So let us know the roles of God as clearly defined here. Electing, calling, and regenerating believers is God's responsibility, not ours. That's God's sovereignty. Do you get it? Sharing the gospel is ours. It's not God's. It's our responsibility. It's our faithfulness. So let us not play God. Try not to fathom His sovereign plan. Part of the problem, church, that we face is that we look for potholes in sovereignty of God's plan, His plan. We try to figure it out, thinking that we could grasp His plans. We can figure it all out. God is God and we are not. So let God be God, church. So you say, okay, Pastor, I understand we have to evangelize, but I do have another question you ask. I know you have not, but I'm asking myself. How can you say that if Jesus died only for the elect, when he has so many passages of scriptures, I'm going to show it to you one at a time here? Say this: behold, the lamp of the lamp of God who takes away the sin of the world. The the Christ Jesus, the Savior of the world, and the, and the next one is a famous one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I want you to come along with me as you look at the next two verses, verse fourteen and 14 to 16. We see the fact that the Lord died for his sheep, the elect only, is emphatically stated by the Lord himself. You have to come along with me. Don't get lost it begs the question that is debated amongst Christian scholars, what was Jesus's plan for atonement? When Jesus, when he tells us that he would lay his life down for the sheep and sheep alone. Look at verse 14 and 15 here. I am the good shepherd. Please come along. I go slowly here. And I know my sheep. So that means there are sheep out of his fold that do not belong to him, isn't it? He says, I know my sheep. There are so many sheep around the world. And he says, I am known by my own. Meaning, by his sheep, not every sheep on the street. That's what it means. And he says that, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse number 16. Look at this. And other sheep I have which are not this fold, that I must bring and they will hear my voice and they will be one flock and one shepherd. Do you see, church, his design and the resolve in these two verses? He says, I must bring them and they will hear my voice. Do you get it? I must bring them and they will hear my voice. Jesus is going to the cross with the certainty that what he will do. And also he's certain of how his sheep will respond. As he talks about this, the intent of his death, he's in other words telling the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, this atonement is not for you. That's what he's saying. Later on in the verse, uh, verse 26, we we'll look at it next Sunday probably, to the Pharisees, he said, but you do not believe because you are not what? My sheep, as I said to you. Remember church, Jesus has already told us that he's dying for his sheep and they will hear his voice. But right here in this verse he tells them that they, the Pharisees, cannot hear his word because they can't believe because they are not his sheep. So what we take from this, in other words, Jesus' death is only for the sheep and for the elect only, not for those who will not believe even in his high priestly prayer, the night before Jesus died, this is what he prayed. I pray for them, who? The elect. And he says, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, that's the elect. For they are, whose? Yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. I was thinking, about my friends are your friends, and your friends are my friends. I don't know, sorry about that. It came to my mind as I was thinking Jesus says, all all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. So remember church, Jesus prays for those who are his. That is, he prays for his sheep, those who will believe upon his word. So all these support the view of limited atonement, isn't it? That Christ died only for his sheep. So there are two schools of thoughts. It's important for us to explain clearly among the brilliant theologians and maybe among some of you as well. They support different scriptures and they say about the limited atonement that Christ died for the elect only or the unlimited atonement that Christ died for everyone. We do not have time and there is no need for us to debate or argue about that point. The question is, does that really matter to me as a sheep? That's the question. Does this really matter to me as a sheep to know the doctrine of limited or unlimited atonement? Church, there are some doctrine. Please come along with me. This is where most Christians, some, some of the people, they fall away from their faith because of this. There are some doctrines or school of thoughts that we can never resolve on this side of heaven. Never. It's okay if we do not understand or agree with each other. The Lord spoke through Moses very clearly. This is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us. Things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That what we do, that we may do all the words of this law. So in other words, there are things that we will never be able to comprehend. Never be able to grasp. Let us not kill each other with that. Where we should not compromise is the things that the Lord has revealed to us very clearly. Such as, there is salvation in none other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We cannot compromise on that. We need to be tolerant with whom we disagree on doctrines. Do not, that does not affect our salvation. We should not be dogmatic about our views and become a pharisaical Christian casting everyone else out of the fold. Learn, church, do not be vocal where the scripture is silent. Let me repeat that. Do not be vocal where the scripture is silent do not get into these theological debates spend your energy and time to sow the spend your energy and time only to sow the seed because when you debate you confuse the unbelievers the seekers and the new christians whichever side you fall on as a christian be gracious to those who don't believe as you do Focus on the essentials. Do not compromise on what salvation is. Leave all the secret things to be revealed when we get to heaven. If you are so curious, pray the Lord, take me to heaven today. I know you won't pray that. So that you can go and find out from God what these confusing things are. While you are here, engage in one thing, ministry of reconciliation. So what is my response, church? Imagine this. If my salvation in any way depends on me, then I am doomed. Why? Because outside of Christ, I am dead in my trespasses and sin. I am a slave of sin. I will not seek God because I love my sin too much. That is why Christ's atonement is so glorious. He has done everything for me. I do not have the ability to come to faith in my sinfulness. So I thank God that Christ's atonement forgives me of my sin of unbelief and purchases for me my faith. All of salvation, including my faith church, is the gift of God, not a result of my works. We have to praise God for this glorious gift. So your response is not to analyze and ask, am I one of the elect pastors? Or did Christ die for me too? Instead, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. You are the sheep that he died for. Simply surrender yourself. Be saved from eternal condemnation. Do not be like the pharisaical Christians. Church, know this. This truth should comfort us. If you believe in Christ, you are one of his sheep and one of the elect for whom he died. You know, when I read and prepared this message, it took a long time for me to figure all these things out. I was weeping. God, what have I done to be one of those elects? Tell me, what have you done to be one amongst those elects? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, we spent a lot of time on the doctrine of this death about self. is a selfless and sacrificial and specific. Let's keep reading. Verse number twelve and thirteen. But a hireling, who he who sorry he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So what is Jesus saying here? The hired hand has no concern for the sheep. That's what he's saying. But abandons them to save their own life. When the trials hit, they are more concerned about saving their own lives than they are about saving the sheep. It's no great loss to them if the sheep perish. They don't care about that as long as they escape with their lives. What Jesus is implying here, church, is that if you follow the good shepherd, you, you can be assured that he cares for you. Church, if your pastor or your leader takes this mandate, what's in it for me? He is not your shepherd. He is not your shepherd. That does not mean you abuse his kindness. Many times people, people take the kindness as our weakness. If you sense that character in your leader, you should question his leadership. On that note, I can speak for Pastor Dio and myself, and please hold us accountable. If you sense that we are selfish, speak to us before you speak to someone else. Because it's not intentional, but maybe out of ignorance, please feel free to correct us. We are open for loving criticism. Let's move on. Verse number We have looked at 14 and 15, so I'm going to verse number 16. And other sheep I have which are not this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What do you see in here? Two things the Lord is saying. There are other sheep that must be brought into this flock. You get it? And the second thing is that once they are in, they become one fold. Two things he is talking about. Jesus actually referring to the Gentiles who were at that time outside the fold of Israel. He states the necessity, the must, to bring them and with the certainty that they will hear his voice and become one flock. All of you, now I I hope everyone is a Gentile. This is talking about you and me. This is, then, church, this is the mandatory mission that Jesus promises the success of the mission. Look how he describes in verse, verse 16. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So whose responsibility is that? That they are reached out. I said it before and will say it again. We have a responsibility. Every one of us have a responsibility. We cannot sit in pews and warm pews and say, I'm a Christian. If all your demonstration of being a Christian is is to come and warm the seats on a Sunday morning, you are not a Christian. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10 verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved is is not a compromising statement. That is what it is you're talking about. And he said, how then shall... Shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And then the Lord's whom shall I send? Church, it is you and me. Here am I. Send me God. That should be your answer. You might ask, Pastor, why should I witness I've come out of it and I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm, well, I, why should I witness? I've got a family to take care of. I've got business to do. Church, you must witness because of these reasons. Number one, you have to witness because God commanded us to do it. He commanded us. Before he was ascended to heaven, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Even though he was talking to the, to the disciples and the others surrounding here, who will go to the ends of the world? You and me. We witness because church, the example of the early church, when the early church was scattered, Acts 8.4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They are not talking about disciples or apostles. They are talking about the believers. And they say they went about sharing the gospel with others. You and I. Thirdly, That is the right stewardship of the gospel. Because everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. You receive it, you better give it out. Finally, it is the work of the ministry. You see that in the scriptures. And he himself gave some to the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. For what? For equipping of the saints. For what? For the work of the ministry of the ministry. So every believer is called to be engaged in the missions until all the elect are brought to him. You know God's plan here. He's going to bring all the elect together. Church reaching out is not easy. It takes a lot of effort. It costs a lot of time. It costs a lot of money. It brings a lot of risks. It raises a lot of fear. It takes you out of your comfort zone. Paul was in Corinth. He was called with the mission and he went to preach and and he was fearful, he was thinking about leaving when the Lord appeared and this is what the Lord said. Listen to this. This really encouraged me so much. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and do not be afraid but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people. I have many elect in the city. Wow, Paul was going to give up, I am tired, I am scared of my life. He's fearful, he says, nope, I got people here, you had to preach. But Paul did not know yet who the Lord's many people were at that time. But the Lord knew and he assured Paul that they would come to faith as Paul preached the gospel. This morning in our men's group, thank you, Brother Vianney, for leading us in such a beautiful, a challenging message. And so one brother was sharing, and, and we understood that our, our calling is not to convert others, but to plant the seeds. To plant the seeds. I know we like to see results. And sometimes people call me and ask me how many were baptized this week? I said it's a wrong question. I never answered. I said it's a wrong question. Where have we planted the seeds? Then the very same Paul, this should bring tears to your eyes when he said this in 2 Timothy 2:10. 2, 2, Therefore, what? I what? Endure. Endure. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of who? Sake of who? The elect. Are you getting my message, please? Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Why? That they also may obtain what? Salvation. Do you see the dots connected now? This is what we have been called to do, church. They were chosen before the foundation of the world, but they, were op- they, were op- they obtained salvation when Paul endured hardship to preach the gospel to them. So my question to my friend, to you, my friend, is that do you endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation? And the Lord still has people whom He purchased for God and His blood. from every tribe, every tongue, every people, nation, He's going to bring together. But to gain eternal life, the Lord's people, you and I, must go and tell them about Jesus. What I learned, I want to pass it on to you, my church. When you keep Him first, He will lift you up. This much I can say, when we engage in the ministry of reconciliation, as I said to you before, it's going to cost you something, nothing is free, it's going to cost you something, it can be painful, but I'll tell you this, our God will never abandon you. I've been in the ministry for 30 plus years, the Lord has never abandoned me, never, when your eyes are focused on him. So the truths of election and the effectual calling assures us our efforts will not be in vain. In this process, we will be frustrated. We will want to give up, and we will reject many. And sometimes we might cast out people and say, this person is no good. We cannot cast people out. Let me give you an incident. There was a, in, the, in the early 90s, I went for a, an engagement ceremony and I saw one young man, he looks like Zacchaeus, and he was seated in a sofa and he had a bottle of, I don't know, one of the hard liquors, I think it's whiskey, I don't know what it was, and then he had, he had another glass and, and he was drunk, he was like this. So when I was introduced, he said, oh, good to see you. I said, good to see you, brother. I want to be a mile away from him because I I don't know what he was going to say and I was not prepared for any conversation so I went away. Honestly, I judged him. And I said, you know, this guy is cast out. Two weeks later, I went to the same ladies' prayer meeting. I told you about the rice bag example earlier. The same house I went in, Mississauga. I went, opened the door. Here was the man seated there. I got the shock of my life. I thought I came to the wrong place. I'm looking for bottles here. Are they going to serve bottles here? What's happening here? Believe me or not, within the two weeks, the Lord touched him. If there's one person who, when he opened his mouth, all flowery languages, all he knew, if there's a Saul Paul conversion, that's the only person I've seen. Only person I've seen. We don't know who the elect our church. We are called to be faithful. He will make it grow. We need to plant and water the seeds. And in the same verse again, 16, he says, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Isn't it? What does that mean? It means that the true unity and diversity of the church will be the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. We are one body in which there is no distinction between the races. There is no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, and and the list goes on. Gentiles are now fellow heirs with the Jews of the promise of Christ through the gospel. The glory of the church is when those from diverse racial and social backgrounds join together in harmony to praise God for his great salvation. That's part of the glory of heaven. Remember, in Jesus' day, the Jews hated Gentiles and whom they viewed as unclean dogs. They couldn't conceive of them as being equal standing with God. But God gets more glory when those who are enemies in the world become one flock in harmony. For that reason, we should labor to make this church as racially diverse as our city is. We are just touching the surface. We've got more things to do. Pastor Dio and I spoke and we are willing to fill this sanctuary with more chairs. We are willing to bring the roof down, put up another floor if you want to. But you have a work to do. We should labor. The only barrier we may have amongst us is the language sometimes. But there should be no divide. Look around, church. I really cry when I see you guys. This was my dream. To have people of no nations coming under one roof. In spite of our language and cultural differences, don't you think, church, that there is an instant bond of love in Christ in this place? Won't you agree with me? Yes. We love each other. We love genuinely. We love each other because we are one flock with one shepherd. That's what the Lord was saying. Well, let's go on with this. And, and, and in the same verse, he says there will be one flock. The Christian life is not to be lived in isolation, but in community with other believers. Sheep are independent creatures to thrive. We must be part of a flock. Under the protection of a shepherd. This is why, church, I call you and ask you: Why are you not here in the church? Why are you not sending your children for the programs? Why are why are the young adults not here? Why are the youth not here? Why are the Sunday school children up? Children not here. Why? Because this is important for you for your own protection. That's I'm not saying. That's what the Bible says. There will come a time I will not be able to scream and tell you, church. You should be. You should know that this is what a mandate that God has given to us. Not coming to the fellowship, you are not coming to church to please me or Pastor Dio. Trust me, if there is one person, both of us are prepared to preach. You come here because God has called you to do. You come here because that is the right thing to do. You come here because you are blessed and you are protected. Sheep that stray away from the flock get eaten by the wolves. Then you get a call, oh Pastor Dio, now I've been, my child has been eaten by the wolves, can you come and help me? Why do you call us at that time? Call 911. So even though we may not like some of the sheep, that sometimes, you know, we may not like the sheep in the, who are seated here. I don't like it. But just because I don't like him, it doesn't mean that I don't come and fellowship is isn't it? I love this guy, Satasmi. So trust me. <laughs> if you just come to church and leave without getting to know well some of your fellow believers, you are missing one of the main sources for growth and encouragement in your Christian life. Why do you think there is some snacks on the other side? It's not because you guys are hungry. I know you're not hungry. Because for the time of fellowship. It's an opportunity to get to know each other. So what we have seen thus far is the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He knows them personally and they know him. He brings all of his sheep from different races and background into one flock under his care. Let's. I'm going to close this up. Verse 17 and 18. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. It is difficult to understand the very first statement. Jesus did not mean that he earned the Father's love by laying down his life. Let's make it clear on that. These are some of the things that you don't understand. You don't want to sit and debate about this. But we know from the other scriptures that they love each other. It's an unconditional love. What we take from this verse are three things that we take from here. The Father and the Son always loved one another with infinite love. But the main point is that both the Father and the Son's unison in the atoning work of Christ. That's what you are seeing here. And we are seeing that this death was not a, his death was not a tragical accident where he was a helpless victim. And the third thing that we are seeing is that his divine nature demonstrated in his resurrection. I can bring my life back, back again. That's what we are seeing in these verses. Let's move on to the last two verses, last three verses. 19 to 21. Therefore, there was a division among, uh, again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him, others said. These are not the words of one who has a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What do you take from this? Jesus' teaching caused a division it did than it does even today, church. Maybe amongst us, those of you who are watching on the line, there are two groups of people that we see in this passage. There's one group, many of them, it's a majority that we see, they blasphemously argued that Jesus had a demon and he was insane. Woe to them, their end is eternal hell. There may be some amongst you who feel this way. Could Jesus be the good shepherd as he claims to be? Could he have laid down his life for me? If there is a prompting in your heart, do not let the day pass by without seeking him earnestly. The Lord will reveal himself to you. There's another group here. These are verse 21. Look at verse 21 there. These are the, yes, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. They may not yet have come to saving faith, but they were moving in the right direction. That's what they're seeing here. They saw that Jesus could not be demonic or insane. So the only option is that he is Christ and He is the son of God. He is the eternal word in human flesh. For them, the two things that matters here, look at that passage again there, these are not the words of one who has demons. Jesus' words brought about a revelation for them. Secondly, what you see here, a demon, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus' works brought about a conviction for them. So may I encourage you to study Jesus' words and his works from the scriptures as recorded in the gospel and Lord, show me the truth about Jesus and I will obey. That should be your prayer. But you can't play games with God. The key factor is, are you willing to follow Jesus? If the evidence reveals that he is not, he is of God. The same Jesus is looking to you and at me today. And this is what he's saying again as I conclude this. I am your good shepherd. I give my life for you. It's an expression of love, isn't it? It's an expression of grace. It's an expression of mercy. So what is your response just today? This good shepherd died for the sheep, died for the elect, died for his flock. If you have surrendered yourself to him and have accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior, then he died for you and for me. Imagine this for a moment, church. The creator of the universe. How many people around in this world have ever lived? His eyes were upon you. He died for you. He died for me. What should be my response? I'm speaking to the believers now. May our anthem be to tell him how much we love him. How much we love him. You know when we receive a gift, we say, I love you, isn't it? Oh, thank you. And you give the person a big hug. And we say, thank you. He has given you the greatest gift. To have chosen you. And we have given his life. So that you will have eternal life.